1: you have the chance to win a spring super sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check
2: out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps.
1: It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us, along with our critics this week. Andy Klein... Wade Major of Synagogues.com, and Amy Nicholson, who writes on film for the New York Times and hosts the podcast, Unspooled. We begin with Magic Mike's Last Dance, the third film in the Magic Mike series. Channing Tatum is back, Salma Hayek-Pinot, Steven Soderbergh uh, directs, as he did with the first of the films, and Reed Carolyn is the screenwriter of Magic Mike's Last Dance. Amy, please start us off.
3: Yeah, so Steven Soderbergh has returned to close out this Magic Mike trilogy that he began in 2012. I personally feel weird even calling this a trilogy because each of the films takes place in a different genre, really, kind of a different universe. You know, the very first movie that Soderbergh did, it was this realistic social problem drama about how dancing kills your soul. And then the second was just a weird comedy about hanging out with your bros, very delightful. And this one, the third film, is really an about-face to all of it. It's just like the pure fantasy movie that declares that dance can save the world, but it doesn't actually bother to prove it. Uh, If you've been deeply invested in this trilogy runner that Channing Tatum's Magic Mike will quit dancing for good to launch his custom furniture business, that is clearly now never just going to happen in the series. When the film opens, he's working catering gigs, and while he's tending bar, he meets Selma Hayek, who is this super-rich socialite in the middle of divorcing her kind of Murdoch-esque media mogul husband she loves his dancing she wants to use his dancing to empower the women of the world by having him stage a sexy male dancing show in London so this movie really just has that let's put on a show structure where a whole lot of nothing happens and then at the very end there's a huge dance sequence and it makes you forget that you spent most of the film being a little bit bored. And I found myself kind of irritated because there's so many corners of the story that I wanted it to get into that it didn't. You know, does Magic Mike enjoy learning to be a choreographer and a director? You know, is he at risk of becoming the Matthew McConaughey from the first film? You know, this older guy who's passing the torch to younger men, maybe corrupting them a little bit. Is Magic Mike in his relationship with Selma Hayek kind of teetering into sex work because she's offering to pay him a lot of money at the beginning. Uh, None of that is in this movie. It's really just kind of a not so stealthy advertisement for the Magic Mike empire of live shows. Uh, I will say that I saw like the Magic Mike live dance show in Vegas at my friend's Bachelorette, and it is just fantastic. And a lot of the dances from that are really just recycled and put into this movie. So the film itself doesn't work. But it holds together just because Channing Tatum, who did start his career as an exotic dancer in Tampa when he was 18, he's just such a special movie star. He is, like, credible, as ridiculous as this movie gets. He's low-key, so funny. He's got real dance skills. His two big dance numbers here are fabulous. And you will probably just walk away remembering how good those were and forgetting that the entire, entire rest of the movie was just such a slog.
1: We're talking about Magic Mike's last dance. Wade.
4: I agree almost entirely, except I really like the film, and that's surprising. I I was okay on the first one. I thought this. I do not consider this a trilogy. The second one is non-canonical. Uh, Soderbergh <laughs> did not direct it, so. I erase it from, from the narrative. Um, but what I do find refreshing here is that there's an interesting trajectory. This reminds me very much of, of what they did with, with uh, Saturday Night Fever and Staying Alive, where the first was very much about a guy who's, you know, small, doesn't have a name, he's trying to make his way. And then in Staying Alive, John Travolta, under the direction of, uh, of Sylvester Stallone, hits Broadway. He goes big time. Well, here we take Magic Mike to the West End. It's a similar kind of a trajectory. You go from Tampa to the West End, and um, it's it, it, it's a different. It is indeed a different genre. It's a it's a more engaging film. I think it's a more engaging plot. I think the fact that they pushed all the, his bros out, you see them in a Zoom call, and then they're done with that whole group. It's it's a new environment. It feels like one of those backstage musicals from the 1930s. You know, Gold Diggers, Broadway Melody. It's one of those. <laughs> uh, at a certain point, I was almost thinking this is almost like a raunchy version of a Judy Garland Mickey Rooney movie. Uh, you know, it's almost like Strike Up the Band or Babes in Arms. It's like, you know, a version of that. I felt like their rapport was was verging on that at times. So, uh, there's something old-fashioned about it, but the dancing is really what you're there for. The plot aside, the dancing in the end is really, really terrific.
1: Magic Mike's Last Dance. Andy?
5: Uh, yeah, I more agree with Wade. I mean, I, I did not find it a slog at all. Soderbergh, is is, has such an easy touch with with this stuff and uh i thought the character interactions were fun uh but indeed the dance is where it is all going to and one of the numbers at the end which uh apparently according to amy came from the stage show involving water on the stage and sliding and gliding is just beautiful uh so yeah i thought it was pretty solid
1: Magic Mike's Last Dance, starring Channing Tatum and Salma Hayek-Pinot. is directed by Steven Soderbergh. Reed Carolyn wrote the script. It's rated R in wide release. Marlowe is a return of Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe character to the big screen. Liam Neeson stars as The Private Investigator. Diane Kruger co-stars. Jessica Lange in the cast. Neil Jordan directs. William Monaghan wrote the screenplay. Wade, what did you think of Marlowe?
4: Not much. It's a it's a weird knockoff. Uh, there, there must have been some kind of Irish money in this because it's based on a novel, not a Raymond Chandler novel, but a, a newer novel by an Irish novelist who's trying to sort of channel Chandler. Uh, and then obviously Liam Neeson's Irish and Neil Jordan's Irish, and it's taken many many years. So this and it was shot in Spain. It was shot in Barcelona for Los Angeles. So all of this feels like a kind of a, an imitative pastiche. And it's on almost entirely European cast. They throw Jessica Lange in there for a little, you know, Danny Houston, some American tokenism. The first of two Danny Houston movies this week. Uh, And and he, he, you know, it it doesn't feel authentic. It just feels like it's aspiring to be what a real Raymond Chandler Marlowe would be.
1: All right. The oh, film is Marlo Andy.
5: I actually thought that it I loved the style, the visual style of this. It invokes every neo-noir that's been made in the last 50 years, Chinatown frequently, uh, or even going as far back as Kiss Me Deadly. Uh, I thought it was beautifully shot, but who cares about the story? The story is just a nothing burger.
1: Marlowe's Rated R. It's in wide release starting next Tuesday, Valentine's Day. The romantic comedy At Midnight stars Monica Barbaro and Diego Bonetta. The film's directed by Jonah Feingold, who co-wrote the screenplay. Andy?
5: Uh, Yeah, this is a a very uh, slight romantic comedy, but totally enjoyable, I thought, about... uh, two movie stars who play in the uh, some sort of superhero franchise. She plays Firefina, <laughs> and I forget what his name is. And they're also having a relationship, and he cheats, and she gets ticked off, but they still have to do scenes together in a, in a resort in, in Mexico where there is a handsome uh, hotel manager who she starts striking up a thing with. Uh, It's very thin, but uh, actually, I mean, it is quite funny, and and the characters are really likable, uh, particularly—what's her name again? Monica. Monica Barbaro? Yes. Yes, she really has something, and she's pretty much the emotional center of this film.
1: At Midnight, the romantic comedy, Wade.
5: Here's how forgettable this movie
4: is. I literally forgot it within two days. I watched this two days ago, and then as I was looking at the rundown for the show, I'm staring at the title and I'm thinking, what was that movie? I can't remember what it was. <laughs> what right. happened? And then I watched the trailer. and I was like, Oh, that movie! And it all came back. So it's it's very forgettable. But it's that's not necessarily a bad thing because it is. It's what Andy said. It's it's fluffy. It's it's you know it's something. It's it's fast food. And I agree. Monica Barbaro is something special. She she's gonna have a huge career. She's got amazing presence and magnetism. Is it you know it hits all the all the regular tropes and there's nothing spectacular about it. But their chemistry is fine and she's lovely and I think that's enough.
1: At midnight is rated R. It's streaming on Paramount Plus. Seriously Red, an Australian comedic drama, is directed by Gracie Otto, crew Boylan wrote it, and Boylan stars in the film, along with Rose Byrne and Bobby Cannavale. Wade, Seriously Red.
4: Yeah, this is one of those uh, campy Australian films that the Aussies do so, so well. It's right in that pocket with Muriel's Wedding and Priscilla Queen of the Desert and Strictly Ballroom, about a woman who who wants to just, she dreams of having a big career as a Dolly Parton impersonator. That's her dream. And... uh, Uh, winds up falling in with this guy who's a Kenny Rogers impersonator and (laughs) and and the interesting part of the story is that that she's a lesbian and she's been repressing that part of her because it's she's trying to be something that she's not. Dolly Parton is that's that's sort of a a metaphor for the struggle in her life generally, and her mom, and she doesn't want to incur the judgment of her mom, and you know it's all of those acceptance things that sort of are at the center of movies like Muriel's Wedding as well. And uh, I think it's it's not as as sharp as it probably should be. You know, it's very much a piece she wrote for herself as a vehicle. Um, should have probably been rewritten by someone else to give it give the story a little bit more of a, a forward thrust. But it's got a lot of really wonderful sweetness heartwarming scenes.
1: Seriously Red, starring Crew Boylan, who wrote it, Gracie Otto directed. It's rated R. You can see it at the Harkins Theater in Chino Hills. The Cine Lounge Sunset in Hollywood, also available on demand. Seriously Red. The mystery thriller Sharper is directed by Benjamin Caron, written by Brian Gatewood and Alessandro Tanaka. It stars Julianne Moore and Sebastian Stan. Andy, what did you think of Sharper? I
5: thought this was a very well put together little thriller uh the opening image is is a a clock a watch being assembled with with fine little parts and that's a metaphor more for the film than it is for referring to any plot element in the film and we were told that a sharper is somebody who lives by their wits the opening 20 minutes appears to be a light romantic comedy with a sweet bookstore owner falling for this fabulous Ph.D. student. they perfect couple, and she cons him out of $350,000 and disappears. Even though he's a bookstore owner, he has that money because his father is rich. At that point, the film reveals its structure, which is we flash back to where she's being prepped, and she's actually just a junkie on parole, and she's prepped with this entire personality that is designed to appeal to him for this grift. The film is a succession of revelations like that, some of which you may see coming. I did not see most of them coming, and uh, it's I didn't find any plausibility plot holes in this. Uh, it's very well worked out. It's entertaining. Julianne Moore gets to play sexy, uh, and carries a lot of the second. She does not show up until halfway through the film, even though she gets top billing because she's really she's a star. Yeah, uh, but uh, it's not the greatest con game film ever made. It owes a lot to The Sting and there, you know, other better examples. But it's very solid.
1: Sharper is the film, Julianne Moore, Sebastian Stan, a film directed by Benjamin Caron. It's rated R. It's at the Regal L.A. Live Theater in downtown L.A. And then it's also uh, next Friday, starts streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. Filmmakers for the Prosecution, a French documentary from Jean-Christophe Klotz and Stuart Schulberg. wait.
4: This is terrific, uh, and it's only an hour long. It, what happened right at the end of World War II was that John Ford decided he needed— John Ford was basically in, uh, put in charge of, of collecting evidence for the Nuremberg trial. So he assigned Stuart and Bud Schulberg, brothers, Hollywood royalty, to, to do that task, to go around Germany and gather up all of the evidence which the Nazis, being uh, obsessive about recording all of their crimes, had, had very readily available. And it becomes a bit of a race because the Nazis are now destroying massive amounts of film and and records and so forth because they know what's coming. And so you have this almost thriller structure to this, including tons of never-before-seen footage, which is really extraordinary. Um, And you find out just how much we wound up not seeing, even though it was presented at trial, but the world was not given was not privy to a lot of this evidence. Um, so really, it, you know from a Hollywood standpoint, from just a cultural history standpoint, really a fascinating narrative.
1: Well, this must have been, I mean, taken years to put together. Yeah, film. this
4: is it's all in material that has been in the Schulberg family. Sandra Schulberg is, is uh, Stewart's daughter, and she did a monograph on this previously by this title. So this is a, a little bit of archaeology as well. All of these archival materials that have been in the Schulberg family assembled here for the first time.
1: Wow. Now, the film again, Documentary Filmmakers for the Prosecution, directed by Jean-Christophe Klotz and Stuart Schulberg. It's unrated, and it's at the Lumiere Music Hall in Beverly Hills. Coming up, the Netflix romantic comedy, Your Place or Mine, starring Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher, and The Blue Kaftan, also coming up, a film from France. It's film week coming your way on LAST 89.3. I'll be back with more reviews from our critics in one minute.
2: Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes, on stage for four weeks only. Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at pasadenaplayhouse.org.
1: It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Reminder, if you joined us late and you missed hearing what our critics had to say about the new Magic Mike film, Magic Mike's Last Dance, you can still catch it wherever you get your podcasts or at LAist.com, also available on the LAist smartphone app. Uh, next up is Your Place or Mine, a romantic comedy on Netflix starring Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher. The film is written and directed by Aline Brosh McKenna. Andy. Uh,
5: this film is uh, brings to life the oldest fantasy in the world, that you can be best friends with somebody you had a brief fling with for 20 years, and really all this time you should have been together. And that's how the and the film is all about working towards that goal. Uh, Ashton Kutcher is a big bucks guy in New York who used to want to be a novelist but gave up. Uh, Reese Witherspoon is a single mom working her butt off with a 13 year old son who's allergic to every substance in the world, and she's very overprotective. And when she has to go to New York to take a course to better her position. Ashton Kutcher uh, offers to go to LA and babysit for the 13-year-old and show him what having a good male role model is like, except that, of course, in some ways, he's a terrible male role model because he's totally irresponsible. They work through all this. It's moderately amusing. I did not actually like it as much as At Midnight, the other rom-com this week but it's it's slickly put together, uh, but. <sighs> really like we've seen this before
1: we're talking about your place or mine wade
4: we've seen this many times before but we've never seen it with reese witherspoon and ashton kutcher and i think somebody realized how did the 90s get away and we never put ashton kutcher and reese witherspoon together (laughs) how did that happen so here we are you know 30 years later and we're going to remedy that uh, that oversight and uh it it is it is totally familiar and totally predictable and i thought there's no way that you're going to get out of this movie and, and and expect me to have, enjoy this chemistry where they're n- almost never on the screen they have, together. Like,
5: I think three scenes three together. Three scenes
4: together. Like they're together in the first scene, they're together at the end, and then in the, the whole bulk of the film, the 90% of the film in the middle, they're in different cities, and I thought, these two charismatic stars, you're not going to get away with that. The whole point is to see them together. But you know what? Despite all those misgivings, this is how big they are as stars. This is how much charisma they have. When they The awe moment is there. That Harry Met Sally moment is there, and it squoves that little that little something out of me at the end. So it, uh, despite all the misgivings, it actually does come together.
1: Your Place or Mine, written and directed by Aline Brosh McKenna, Reese Witherspoon and Ashton Kutcher star, rated PG-13. It's streaming on Netflix. The Blue Kaftan is a Moroccan film and, in fact, that country's official entry for Best International Film at the Academy Awards. The film is written and directed by Mariam Tuzani. Uh, wait, what do you think of The Blue Kaftan?
4: Yeah, our, our second film about repressed heter- uh, homosexuality this week. Uh, this is, a, I think, a very brave film. The, what uh, Mariam Tuzani does here is, is she tackles a, a very taboo subject in Moroccan culture, Moroccan society which is closeted homosexuality, and it's about a man, he's a, he's a tailor, he's an, he's an artist, he doesn't use a sewing machine, he, you know, he makes the most beautiful caftans, and, and embroidery, and really the small knots, and everything, it's, it's just real artistry to him, and his wife is, is, as you find out at a certain point, suffering from breast cancer, and it's near the end, but he, he's gay, and uh, does she know and does she understand that he is falling in love with his apprentice and that he has a secret life at the at the bathhouse? And and all of this is sort of paints a portrait of modern Moroccan culture, which does not necessarily emerge beyond Moroccan borders. So I think that's where the film is very brave, especially that it's their official submission. I found that to be very surprising, knowing what we know of the culture. Um Unfortunately, there's not enough story there to really sustain the whole film. It, it's it's one of these weird middling things where there's more story than a short film, but not enough for a complete feature. This would have been great at about maybe 55, 60 minutes, like, you know, filmmakers for the prosecution. But at a at, at full feature length, it really kind of starts to feel like there's there's too much contemplation and too many photos, too many shots of hands and feet, and it kind of wears thin at a certain point. Nonetheless, there's a lot of very admirable filmmaking and some wonderful, wonderful performances, especially Lubna Osbal, who plays the wife, uh, was the star of Incendie, the uh, French-Canadian Oscar-nominated mm-hmm. film of some years ago by uh, Denis Villeneuve. So she's um, She's wonderful. Everyone else in the cast is wonderful. Very good filmmaking. It's
1: just a little thin for the length. The Blue Kaftan in Arabic with English subtitles. The film is unrated. You can see it at Lemley's Glendale and Lemley's Royal Theater in West L.A. Full Time, a French uh, dramatic thriller written and directed by Eric Gravel. The film stars Laure Calamy, Anne Suárez, and Jean-Féviere Minich. Andy, what would you think of Full Time?
5: This is almost the perfect example of a film that I admire but did not enjoy at all. <laughs> it is, this poor woman is is just so harried and the film is at a constant pitch of anxiety with thumping music on the soundtrack as she is trying to take care of her kids, do her day job, which is a huge long commute in the middle of a transit strike, and Try and apply for a job that would match her educational qualifications because she's a highly trained market researcher and she's working as a hotel maid. Uh, it just Lori Calame carries this whole thing on her shoulders. It is all her performance, and I, but it is just—I have to say—I mean, I, I was drained watching this. <laughs>
1: What do you
4: think, Wade, full time. 100% the same thing. You know, the French are... They, 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 there's a certain genre that exists only in France, and it is the workplace drama. It, these are dramas about the struggles of employment. And, you know, Time Out by Laurent Cantet in 2001 was another one of these. The struggles of employment. A nation that has chronic uh, unemployment makes these kinds of movies. It is so anxiety-inducing, but it's so well-made. And her performance is so good but you're 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 there for the chase for as she runs from train to bus to car to this job to that interview to pick up her kids and fighting with everybody and risking being fired every step of the way cuz she's always a step behind always a minute late it is it's a it's a hard film to watch but it's so well done
1: we're talking about the french movie full time which is unrated it's at lemley's royal in west la the sci-fi thriller the nomad written and directed by daniel uh, diosodado and the film is unrated andy what did you think of the nomad
5: uh, this is a fairly tense little thriller about a serial killer uh who goes nuts because he worked on a team with mathematicians who prove mathematically that God does not exist, something which is, of course, not within the realm of mathematics. But he's a former seminarian, so he goes berserk. And there's an ambitious young reporter, a woman who decides to cover this story. And by sheer coincidence— she sees him on a subway she does not know he's the guy but for some reason she decides to follow him they talk a lot about in this film about whether coincidences are really coincidences and all that but frankly that is the one real weakness in the film but it turns out she's got ulterior motives for what she wants to use him for besides tracking down the story it's, it moves quickly. Uh, some of the philosophical meanderings are really kind of silly, I think. Uh, but it's, it's a tense little thriller.
1: We're talking about The Nomad, written and directed by Danielle Diozdado. Uh, the film is unrated, and it's available on demand. Also this week, Godland, uh, which uh, is a Scandinavian film written and directed by Lenore Palmasan. Uh, the film uh, stars Elliot Crosset-Hove. what do you think of Godland.
4: It's kind of a theme this week, movies that are really, really well made and not fun to watch. Uh, this is incredibly well done. but boy, what a what a purgatorial odyssey th- this is. It's if you if you really wanted to make people depressed, you make this a triple feature along with the mission and Black robe, all movies about um, period films about priests on on these horrible horrible missions that that do not necessarily yield uh, productive fruit. This takes place late 19th century. Uh, A Danish priest is sent to Iceland, which then is a very, very hostile environment, Uh, not a pleasant place at all, not sure it's changed much. And he's he's on assignment to build a church, to find a location and build a church. And of course, his the whole the whole trip becomes just one hellacious experience after another. The hostile environment, a volcano is erupting. You know, there he almost dies. Some other people die. It really just gets incredibly unpleasant. And uh, I guess there's a message at the end of the two and a half hours. You 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 do feel exhausted, but you feel as though. You know, it was inspired by photographs that were actually found of early Iceland that had been taken by a priest. So that this this fictitious story is inspired by an actual real artifact. But, um, boy, it really is uh, you got to have a stern constitution to sit this one through.
1: Godland is the film. It's in Icelandic and Danish with English subtitles. It's unrated and at Lemley's Glendale and Lemley's Monica Film Center in Santa Monica. The dramatic thriller *Daughter* stars Casper Van Dien and Elise Din. The film's written and directed by Corey DeShawn. Andy, what would you think of *Daughter*?
5: Uh, <laughs> that's that's what I thought of *Daughter*. Um, it's not that it's badly done. It's a, a premise is that that uh, a paternal figure who has a family, who has a son who he dotes on, who he thinks is going to save the world. And we suspect that he might do that by actually draining the kid of blood when he's 18 or something to, you know, it's not clear. But uh, he, he needs to have a stable family structure. And so he kidnaps a girl to be the sister. And she is the latest in a long line of people filling the role of sister which the boy is so removed from reality that he doesn't know. They never leave the house. He locks everybody down. And you're waiting for either him to go berserk and kill everybody or for them somehow to effect an escape. Uh, it's kind of kind of depressing, quite frankly. It sounds but, pretty depressing. Yeah, uh, but it, it, it's, it moves fairly quickly. It's short and uh like i say there's a certain cleverness to the concept uh, you know it's a, it's a cult film really in the literal sense yeah
1: yeah a uh, daughter is the movie it's unrated it's at lemley's glendale theater and on demand the horror thriller consecration stars jenna malone danny houston and uh, is directed by christopher smith who co-wrote it with lori cook wade
4: yeah, Danny Houston once again playing uh, a good system. guy who turns out to be not such a good guy, which is kind of his whole mo in his career. So Jenna Malone is is uh, this woman who finds out that her brother, who who was a priest, has now committed suicide, and and it, she's devastated. And they, of course, have a very very dark family history, which is unfolded as the as the film goes on. You see these flashbacks that are just horrifying. And so to to kind of get to the bottom of this and to, you know, look, reclaim her brother's body and all of this, she goes to this Scottish convent where all this happened, which is, of course, in the most horrific place imaginable. The, the spookiest bo- location it's the spookiest possible island on the spookiest cliff. It's like you know, overlooking the oceans. And it's it, it, it's really it's just a horror movie cliche. And, um, of course, then there are all kinds of discoveries about the family and her history and her brother and why are the nuns acting so weird and why are she, why is she having these bizarre visions of the nuns, you know, mutilating themselves. And it, it all, you know, there are a lot of sort of uh, horror film cliches here and, and thriller cliches. It does actually go to a place that I thought was a little bit different so i give it credit for that and and it's very well done it's very polished and you know danny houston does his level best to do the danny houston thing so it's i didn't hate it i didn't like it um it's very much of a piece but because it does have one twist that i thought was was better than the average i give it a slightly above average mark
1: consecration is in select theaters it's rated r uh and wait can you give us just uh like 20 seconds on disquiet the mystery
4: yeah somebody said let's remake Jacob's Ladder uh, we have, a, we have a, lo- a hospital location that's abandoned and we've got a few bucks and uh, some actors who need some money and we have access to Jonathan Reese Myers. so let's make the lowest budget possible Jonathan Reese Myers horror film in a location like this
1: and it's disquiet and it is uh, disquiet uh, written and directed by Michael Winnick it's rated R available on demand alright well stay tuned coming up we're going to talk about a new pricing strategy for AMC theaters we'll also also be talking about the just open Pan African Film Festival here in Los Angeles. And I want to remind you that coming up Sunday afternoon, March 5th, in downtown Los Angeles at the Orpheum Theater, it's the 21st annual Film Week Academy Awards preview. All of our Film Week critics on stage at the same time will have clips of the Oscar nominated best pictures. It's going to be a wonderful afternoon. Get your tickets now at slash events. That's Sunday afternoon, March 5th. A week before the Oscars themselves are handed out, you'll find out what our critics think.
2: Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Will Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at pasadenaplayhouse.org. It's
1: Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, and always great on Film Week to have our John Horn with us. You not only hear him with the terrific interviews on Film Week regularly, but he's the host of the LAS Studios podcast, Retake. John's with us today to talk about AMC Theater's brand new pricing program for their seats. John, thanks so much. What's AMC planning to do?
6: Well, let me step back and give you a couple real life examples. So, the LA Kings are playing at home on Saturday, and it's Dustin Brown Jersey retirement night. So, it's a harder ticket to get. If you go on StubHub, you can sit in row nine center ice for $360. That's one ticket, not cheap. No. If you want to grab a nosebleed seat, it's $130. So yes, better seats cost more money. I'll give you another example. Let's say, Larry, you feel compelled to go visit uh, our friends at American Public Media in Minneapolis tomorrow. You can fly from LAX to Minneapolis First Class is $939. Comfort Plus, a little more. Leg Room on Delta is $639. Regular Coach is $549. That kind of pricing has been around a very long time. But in the movie theater business, the only real discount that people have are used to, are matinees. And if you go see a movie in IMAX and 3D, it might cost more. So what AMC is saying is different. It's saying that a seat really close to the screen, which might give you vertigo and a neck sprain, if not both, (laughs) uh, shouldn't cost as much as seats in the middle of the auditorium uh, a few rows back. So the program is that you can save two dollars Uh, If you choose to sit up front, but you're going to have to pay as much as $2 more if you want one of the better seats, kind of in the middle of the auditorium, auditorium, I like to be in the aisle. So now it's starting to look a little bit like the sports or the airline model that I shared with you. And
1: we anticipate that for particular films. Uh, that's going to be a wider spread in prices if it's a high-demand movie?
6: Not yet. And that gets to something that's really interesting. So AMC, first of all, is rolling out the plan in a couple dozen theaters in New York, Chicago, and Kansas City. And if uh, ticket buyers don't burn the theaters down, they'll spread it out uh, nationally by the end of the year. So this is the bigger issue. AMC, like a lot of theaters, is suffering because post-pandemic audiences aren't coming back. In fact, box office from 2019 to 2022 was down about 35%. So fewer people are going to the multiplex, and AMC, like a lot of theater chains, has a huge amount of debt. They have $5.3 billion in debt. So, yes, they're raising prices overall. The question that you're addressing is, should you pay more? for a better movie. So I'm going to give you another example. Yeah. If you want to buy a Big Mac in California, it costs about $5. I just looked this up. It's cheaper in South Dakota if you want to drive that far. If you want the so-called Big Mac at the French Bistro Petit toit in the Valley, it's a double cheeseburger, Bordelais, special sauce, gar- garlic, and parsley frites, otherwise known as fries. It's $37. Oh, my gosh. For a burger? Well, it's a high-end restaurant. You got and Maybe you can have a good glass of wine. But at the box office, there's never been that kind of differentiation, differentiation based on quality. So the prices for a truly terrible movie are generally the same as they are for a really good one. So it costs the same to see Lamborghini. The man behind the legend, maybe your critics reviewed it, maybe they didn't, 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. (laughs) Or Bob Odenkirk's Life Upside Down, a whopping 6% on Rotten Tomatoes.
1: They pay you to go see it? Uh,
6: Exactly. Same price as Top Gun Maverick. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. So theater chains have tried to boost prices. AMC did it with the Batman a year ago. It hasn't yet caught on.
1: I, I'm just wondering how, and I guess that's why they're doing it in test markets, Is how the audience is is going to respond to this. Now, I'm someone. Everybody has their place. They like to sit. If I walk into an empty theater, I like sitting on an aisle in the back. I like being a little farther from the screen. So I want. I guess I might pay a premium for being on the aisle, but pay less because I like being in the back. Right. I don't know. So, so
6: there are some seats that won't change uh, in terms of pricing. The the Seats right up front are going to cost less. than seats right in the middle. I like to be on the aisle generally because I don't want to make this that well-known, but I'll say it, especially at film fest- festivals, I want to be able to get out if yeah. the movie's not any good. Yeah. Um, and I like to have a little leg room. So, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think it's a really interesting question. AMC, like other theater chains, has to make more money. Fewer people are going to the theaters. I don't know. I mean, if fewer people go to the theaters, the last thing you would want to do is say it's going to cost you more. But, you know, Paramount just did a discounted for 80 for Brady, uh, where they did early screenings for and a big older audience turnout. So they made a discount for older audience at certain days uh, to come see the movie. So I don't know. I, I think the theatrical business model is deeply flawed. And I think the pandemic exposed how antiquated it is.
1: John, I've been thinking a lot about the way movies used to be exhibited, you know, many, many years ago, uh, before, before our time, where you would have in a typical, you know, mid-sized city, you might have two movie palaces, for example. And they would show the really big releases, and sometimes weeks at a time, the same film. And they were large capacity relative to the population of the town. And so they would get the economy of scale and the building itself would be part of the draw. This is even pre-TV. And then, of course, you get the flip, which is the megaplex with, you know, 15 or more screens and, and, uh, and a lot of mediocrity. And I wonder if we might be heading back more to the sort of movie palace model so the theater itself becomes a luxury item and an attraction and a big movie like Avatar or Top Gun Maverick can stay for weeks But the sort of more disposable films, those are things people see at home.
6: No, I think that's a very good point. And certainly L.A. along Broadway and Hill has many of those great palaces. Uh, I'd go. I'd go see it. I mean, they might have to put in some new seats. They're not super comfortable. The problem with that era that you're talking about, is all those shoebox theaters, if you're seeing some kind of quiet foreign language movie and there was some – you know, Transformers movie in the next screen, you could hear every single explosion (laughs) coming through the walls. It was like almost impossible. So I don't know. I mean, fewer movies are getting released theatrically. As I said, fewer people are showing up. I don't know what the solution is. If you restore a movie palace, it might work in some cities. But again, our people who have become accustomed to watching movies at home, they know that that movie at the multiplex is going to come their way there are certain movies, you know, Top Gun, Avatar. There are a lot of movies that you have to see in a theater because they're the better. Marvel
1: films, yeah. Yes,
6: and there are certain movies that you want to see with an audience, but the audience generally is not going back.
1: So where is IMAX in this and other large screen formats? Because it seems to me that their approach was kind of, well, this is the thing that's going to get people out of the house. And it's perfect for the kinds of highly visual movies that we're talking about. So how is IMAX and the others like that doing?
6: Well, IMAX doesn't have to play the tiny Bulgarian documentary. They get a pick of the litter. So they get big movies like Avatar that look better in 3D on a big screen. So they actually get to pick the best movies and then they can charge a premium for it.
1: So that model, again, that's kind of similar to what I'm talking about (laughs) where... It's uh, it's yeah, like yeah. the
6: Big Mac and the Big Mech. <laughs> five go. bucks at McDonald's and $37 at the French Beast. Now you've
1: got me curious uh, about that $37 <laughs> burger. John, sure thanks so much. I I appreciate it. Our John Horn joining me. Of course, you hear him as the host of the L.A.S. Studios podcast, Retake. And you hear him almost every week right here on Film Week on LAist dot uh, com and on las eighty nine point three both. Coming up, the Pan African Film Festival is underway in uh, Los Angeles, specifically Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. We're going to be talking with a longtime executive director of the decades-old film festival. When we come back on Film Week, in just one minute. Yeah. It's Film Week on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle with the Executive Director of Los Angeles' own Pan-African Film Festival. Ayuko Babu has been executive director of the PAFF since it was established in 1992. And the festival is back at the Cinemark, Baldwin Hills, and XD Theaters. It's accompanying Art Fest at the Baldwin Hills Crenshaw Plaza. Uh, So good to have you back with us, Ayuko, to talk about this year's festival. For those who haven't uh, attended uh, over the years, what's the principal purpose of the festival?
7: The principal purpose of the festival is two things. One, as you know, uh, distributors try to gauge whether or not there's an interest in the film, whether or not they can make money on a film by putting a film into uh, a film festival and get a kind of reading of the audience that goes to that film festival to see if there's an interest. And uh, one of the things we have had a lot of filmmakers, a lot of uh, actors, African-American actors, have uh, completed over years there's not there was no uh, very few black audiences at those film festivals, so you if you showed a black film and you wanted to know what the black audience was thinking about you didn't have a way to gauge that yeah. One of the things was to create a film festival where there was primarily a pan African audience meaning uh, black folks from all over the world so you could get a sense of what interest had in that film. The other purpose of the festival is this as a result of the slave trade and colonization. African people were spread all over the planet uh, for 400 years. So on one hand, we have a spiritual, emotional, and sometimes a practical connection, but a lot of times we don't know each other and don't understand each other's stories, and we don't really understand that our story is really collective. And what I mean by that is that a little bit of our story is in Papua New Guinea, a little bit of our story is in... uh, the Aborigines in Australia, a little bit of our stories in Harlem, a little bit of our stories is in, in Lagos, Nigeria. So we have all these different pieces of the story, a little bit of our story in Haiti. And the world, and sometimes we sort of see these things as separate, but in fact, they all spring out of colonization and slavery. So we have a common, under, common connection. And what that really means is that in order to really understand ourselves, we got to know the story, not just in New York, not mm-hmm. just in Haiti but also what's going on in Papua New Guinea and do we get a better understanding. Also, we learn from each other and we grow from each other and increases and enhances the culture.
1: We're talking with Ayuko Babu, who is the executive director of the Pan-African Film Festival. It's on through February 20th. Some 200,000 plus Angelinos and others who travel to Los Angeles to see the films that are part of the exhibition uh, make it a big event in the film community, the largest African-American film festival in the country. Um, Ayuko, what are some of the films that really came to public attention first at your festival?
7: Example that is uh, Love and Basketball. Uh, Gina Prince-Brightwood, who now has just uh, done a wonderful film called Woman King. We were instrumental in uh, helping Satsi from South Africa get an Academy Award Best Foreign Film I uh, we helped showcase that film, opened it and uh, at the DJ and and got spotlight on it. Um we also participated in helping uh Think Like a Man get out there a little further. And also um uh, Kevin Hart, his first film debuted at our Festival 32 and Ticking, and we helped lay the foundation for him to become who he is. So wow. they, a lot of folks have been through here and you know, got the, the experiences and exposure that way.
1: Uh, Ayuko, I, I want to ask you about uh, the studios themselves and major production companies. Are they paying attention to the films that you show at the festival? Do you feel that it it's having a significant impact on films that are aimed at... Uh, African Americans, or or films that feature in front of and behind the camera, prominent African American creators.
7: Good question,
1: <laughs> yeah.
7: and I'm smiling. It's it's a mixed bag, um, half and half. An example of that is uh, this year, our opening night film is is a wonderful film uh, from around the world, and um, it's put out by uh, Searchlight. Film called Chevalier. Uh, this is a film about a uh, very famous uh, black musician, violinist. From uh, his, his, his mother was enslaved from Senegal, and he was raised uh, in the Caribbean in Guadeloupe. And his father was a nobleman from the a French nobleman. And uh, as a result of that that uh, situation. He had an opportunity to become, get an education and, and become one of the greatest uh, musicians in the uh, 18th century. He once was the head of the uh, Paris Opera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, tremendous film that really in, that really reflects a deep, deep, deep historical issues that Black folks have gone through for many, many, many years and what he went through as, as a... Uh, a person. He was a contemporary of uh, uh, the man who wrote the, the pre, uh, Three Musketeers. Tremendous film, Chevalier. Spotlight has given us the opportunity to showcase it because it is a major film. It's going to raise a lot of wonderful, incredible questions about music. Uh, he was famous. Uh, they used to call him the uh, the Black Mozart.
1: And so, and so with... this is an example of cooperation with a with a studio. Exactly. All
7: right. And so some sometimes we we'll, they they um they're interested and and we have some nice uh, relationships with them then they move on to something else and then sometimes they come back and get interested and we always reach out to them. So it's a mixed bag. <laughs>
1: For uh, all the listings, ticket information, and passes to the Pan African Film Festival at the Cinemark Baldwin Hills uh, through February 20th, you can visit the film festival's website, paff.org. That's paff.org, that uh, stands for Pan African Film Festival. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the size of the audience that you get for this because. It, it has built up a following to where I know you get many people who just come every year. They're really uh, diehards. And and what do you feel like is the most important aspect in the audience response that you get? Is it that connection you were talking about earlier, the international um, black diaspora that's represented here, or something else that you
7: would put foremost? That The connection... And have an understanding and get an an opportunity to be exposed to uh, these various aspects, the various voices of the Black world is something that people really, really are interested in and is really driven to experience. Every day in the newspapers, you see something about Somalia, you see something about uh, uh, South Africa, you see something about what's going on in Trinidad, or you see something internationally uh, in the east uh, between Ukraine and uh Russia well people have a sense that these films brings you a little closer to the understandings of these experiences and what's going on and get make more connections that's that's a that's a value um
1: Yuko just real quickly before we close uh can you give us just like 20 30 seconds about the art Festival which runs concurrently with the film Festival?
7: The Art Festival does the same thing. We bring over a hundred major painters, artists, clothes designers, jewelers from the whole world, from the Caribbean, all over the world. And they're here at the same time as the art, art at the same time as the films are. So you get a chance to experience films and art. And also the art the art festival has a component that you can actually buy the fine art, you can buy the sculptures. It's uh, it's a free you can go in free, you don't have to pay uh, a cost for that. So we get about 75,000 people to come see the art show and about 50,000 people come see the films.
1: Thank you so much, Ayuko Babu, executive director of the Pan-African Film Festival. He's been the man at the head since it established more than 30 years ago. Thank you so much, Ayuko. We appreciate it. And again, all the information, the screening times, info for the Cinemark Baldwin Hills location of the Pan-African Film Festival can be found at paff.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Film Week on LAist 89.3. Have a great weekend.
0: The LAist Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism.